Hello again, and welcome back to the Home Over Service podcast. This is episode three. Yeah, we've made it all the way to the third episode. Um, before we start the uh, evening's uh, podcast, um, I'd invite you all to follow me on Twitter at Homo Absurdus. That's at H O M O A B U S U R D U S. Um, and let me know what you think about this following interview. Um, so, this interview is quite interesting. I sat down uh, with a guy called Josh, uh, who I've known for, gosh, uh, maybe 10 years or so. Um, and the interesting thing about Josh is that he's a libertarian, um, as I mentioned on last week's podcast. Um, and he wanted to uh, come along and explain some stuff about libertarianism, um, what it really means and what it really is, um, perhaps some misrepresentations it had in the media. And, and I wanted to ask him some questions, so we agreed on a few topics uh, that we talk about. And uh, honestly, I think we spent um, as much time talking uh, off mic as we did on. Um, so I think maybe at some point in the future, I'll get him back and we'll have a discussion about some of the topics that we uh, we glossed over or that we missed. Um, so yeah, the following is the uh, is the interview that uh, we sat down and had uh, here at my house. Um, yeah, so I'm hoping the audio quality is going to come out all right. I've done my best to remove uh, all the background noise and hissing and such from it. Um, so hopefully it's going to be easy to listen to. Um, yeah, so to start things off, I, I started by asking Josh uh, to tell us, or to really define for us, uh, what libertarianism is. Libertarianism is uh, a broad term to, to uh, explain a spectrum of political and philosophical beliefs. Uh, libertarianism falls into three different categories. It falls into the classical liberals, so people like uh, John Stuart Mill, um, the hard libertarian, and the mini-anarchist. Uh, classical liberals tend to believe in uh, the same guiding philosophy and principle of libertarianism as a whole of the non-aggression principle. Uh, non-coercion, no non-force, um, treating people and viewing them as individuals based on their own uh, characteristics, strengths and merits, um, and having as little uh, force from the government as possible. Although with classical liberals, they tend to believe more so in uh, social welfare, but they believe in uh, slight restrictions and they tend to be a bit sceptical on when it starts to expand. Uh, hard libertarians, they tend to not believe in a social welfare state, but they believe that it should be based on voluntary uh, charitable actions. Uh, they believe that the government should only exist to protect the rights, liberties and freedoms of the people. Uh, so that would be uh, covering the military, the police force, the courts and the prisons. And the, the mini-anarchist is the furthest it goes once before it gets to anarchy, which is the belief that the government should solely be funding uh, the, the military. Um, personally, I fall between sort of between the categories of classical liberal and hardline libertarian uh, because I believe that uh, I don't believe that private charity would be enough to sustain and support the poorest of the poor but at the same time I think we need to try and reform our current system and find new alternatives and new ways of, of uh, funding it. Okay, fair enough. So then just a quick interjection. Um... How do you feel about the welfare state, or how does how does libertarian, or how does that particular stance libertarianism feel about the welfare state? Is that a... Well, the, the the biggest objection uh, libertarianism as a whole has to uh, the welfare state is uh, it 
it, it contradicts the, the non-aggression principle of, uh, of non-force, non-coercion. Uh, the reason it does that is because it is forcibly taking money from other people, other industries, to fund the well-being of other people. And so this is, this is why I sort of fall into the category of like half classical liberal, half hardline libertarian, because uh, I, agree with that, I agree with that principle. However, I don't believe that private charity could do it on its own. So I think the solution would be to um, reform, completely reform our current tax system. So I would say we need to abolish the income tax, abolish the corporate tax, abolish inheritance tax, abolish uh, bedroom tax, and uh, abolish the sales tax, and replace them with two uh, tax systems. Uh, one would be a nationwide flat rate uh, consumption tax of, t- of uh, 10 to 20% of all consumption. And another would be a negative income tax. And now with a negative income tax, it works differently from the, the income tax because it provides a supplement payment to those who are below a certain bracket of income, which would allow them to be able to choose what they put their money towards instead of uh, a portion of money uh, handed out by the government for food, for, for health, for uh, rent and bills. And so it would give, while it would be supporting people, it would also give them the freedom to choose how to use that money, how it's uh, best uh, used in terms of their well-being. And with a consumption tax, because it is solely based on how much consumption the, the country is having, the more uh, expendable income that is, is generated, the more wealth that is generated, the more, um, the more efficiency that is generated in the country, the more consumption, which means the more revenue the government can use to fund the negative income tax. Okay. So it kind of sounds like an alternative to um, uh, the VAT system that we currently have. So a similar sort of thing, like a blanket tax on services and goods. Yeah. Okay, that would fund that. Okay, that all sounds pretty reasonable, I'm going to be honest. Um, Yeah, I don't really know much about libertarianism. Um, Okay, Um, so we've got some topics we want to talk about, but before getting to that, is there anything that you think is unfairly or or underrepresented um, that people just don't know about libertarianism? I think the... I think the biz- the biggest misconception and is that it's uh it's left or right because uh, libertarianism is also about rejecting the dichotomy of left versus right. It's more about an issue of looking at it from a authoritarian versus libertarian standpoint, because you know being left doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be more pro liberty. There have right. been, been many people in the past uh, who have been very authoritarian on the left, and there have been people. Been the right, been very libertarian, very so are, are left-wing libertarians a common thing? Is that? Yeah, they tend to be. First one, quite poignant at the moment, um, given recent events, is um, the stance, I guess, not just the libertarian stance, it's important to point out that you, whilst you are a member of the libertarian party, you don't in any way speak for them, no, uh, no, speaking no. purely for yourself. Um, but yeah, gun control, um, I guess, is, is the big sort of topic to start off with. Um, where do you stand on that? Um, it depends on what country we're talking about. The reason I say that is because while I am pro-gun for defence, um, in terms of the context of the UK, I do not believe that the U.S. gun system would work in the U.K. Uh, we are completely different cultures. America won its battle of independence against a, you know, a tyrannical colonial monarchy, 
because its citizens were able to get guns. It was uh, it was uh, it was a militia, and so this has been ingrained in the American culture for hundred for hundred years, and uh, so as it has grown with the culture, I don't see it working outside anywhere apart from the United States. Yeah. Uh, in terms of guns in the UK, uh, I am absolutely for uh, the use of guns for defence. However, I'm, I'm I'm probably the least libertarian in this area. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, the, the reason being is because uh, I, I try to think, when it comes to things like uh, guns and uh, drugs, I try to think of, of it in the context of the country that it would operate in. Yeah. Uh, so for guns, uh, I take the stance of um, there should be, first of all, the the way I think it should work, it would be, you have to be 25 years or older. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to go through a background check, a criminal background check, and a psychological analysis. Because one of the problems that the United States has is you could be someone with, say, severe schizophrenia, yeah. and you could have no criminal background, but you are a risk Absolutely. because I you think, can't be responsible. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that is one of the biggest problems they have, isn't it? That it's ingrained in that Second Amendment. Um, and I think what you sort of alluded to just there is it, it's more or less impossible to remove that. That's simply not going to happen. It's, even if you are pro-gun control, and I know a lot of people are, um, who also are, are anti-removing the Second Amendment, simply because it's not a practical solution to the problem. Yeah. Um, I just don't, yeah, it's, it's just not going to happen. It's massively ingrained in the culture. I do, I do agree. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd also say that um, I, I think the way the way I think uh, gun ownership for self-defense could work is, instead of in America where they treat it as a right, I would say self-defense is a right, but the use of a gun for defense should be seen as a luxury. A bit like uh, owning a car, where you know, we, uh, if we wanted to, we'd have the freedom to walk all the way from here to Edinburgh. Yeah, um, it would be difficult, but we have the freedom to do it. Yeah, uh, owning a car to do it is is luxury. Yeah, and so I think the way the process could work is, uh, as I said, you need to be twenty five years or older. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar to the way it works at the moment, if you want to go for a sports, where you get a, a form for the from your local police yeah. station, um, you fill the information out with all your uh, medical history, current uh, mental state, if there's any issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you send it back to the police, they check over it, make sure it's all okay. Mm-hmm. Then they send the uh, information electronically because it could be easy to forge it if it's sold in paper. Yeah. They digitally send it to your local gun shop where you're given training and maintenance. And a bit like yeah. a, a car test where you have to pass the, the written and the practical, absolutely, yeah. you have to pass both in order to own a gun. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I, think, I think that's reasonable. I think um, I think there's one of the biggest problems, um, going back to the idea of the Second Amendment in the US, which I guess is kind of what we're alluding to when we're talking about gun control, yeah. um, given the current circumstances <laughs> at least, um, it, it is the fact that, yeah, you, it, there's less there's less paperwork, less legislation on owning a gun than there is owning a car. Exactly. Um, and that, that to me seems <laughs> seems inherent in the part of the problem. Um, yeah. you know. I, I would say that um, I, I also don't believe that uh, for defensive purposes there should be more than one gun per person. Um, and I don't think it should be any type of gun. I think uh, I think uh, the 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 type of gun that should be for self defense would be something along the lines of a, a handgun, uh, because trying to uh, use a say a shotgun or a rifle for self defense uh, in that sort of heat of the moment. If say you have someone break into your house, yeah, you know it's a stressful situation. You're going to be extremely worried. You're not going to be able to concentrate yeah. trying to lift a heavy shotgun. I mean, it has been done before, right? There, there was um, again, I don't remember this gentleman's name, but um, a good few years ago, there was a man who shot up a number of people on his property. Uh, do you remember this case? I don't remember. Yeah, I should have done some research into it now, so I can give you names. But um, I will try and insert them when we go back and edit. But um, yeah, he, he, he shot, I think, for a total of five people uh, and was uh, only prosecuted for the fifth one 
Lucas had shot him from about 50 yards away in the back in the forest outside of his home as he was running away. And they, they said, well, the first four, that's sort of just a use of force. Um, the last one, that's possibly manslaughter at the very least. Um, and I, I kind of, yeah, I kind of see that point. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if I don't know if necessarily you need to have a, a handgun. I think the thing that worries me with handguns, especially as well, is that they don't really have much of an other... Uh, guns in general don't really have another purpose other than to, to, to shoot at things. Yeah. Um, not just humans, admittedly, yeah. but to shoot at things and kill them. That, yeah. that is the entire purpose in a gun. I think um, that's where some of the pro-gun arguments kind of fall down. It's because they equate, they, I think, falsely. Um, and they falsely equate them to things like car ownership and say, well, we have X number of deaths by motor vehicle, which are vastly outstripped the number of deaths by gun. Therefore, the item is not the problem. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know if I can accept that, because I think, though, again, firstly, those things have another use. Yeah. Um, which I think is important. Um, and secondly, I think if, if you're talking about misuse, um, and I doubt much research has been done to this, it certainly isn't often projected by, by um, I guess, libertarians or, or those people who support gun control, whoever they are, um, is this concept of misuse of those things. So, you know, the, actual, the actual percentage of car owners who misuse their cars to kill people is probably much lower than the number of people who own guns who misuse those guns to kill people. Um, and therein, to me, inherently, is the problem. It, it's a powerful weapon that Perhaps should be restricted more. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing with the uh, statistics, um, especially in the United States, because uh, there's around uh, 30,000 uh, gun related crimes a year in the United States. Mm. Uh, at first, that does sound like a lot. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, we have to break that down because the number is uh, split into suicides by gun, mm. um, instances where a criminal has either used a gun or displayed a gun to commit a crime, and instances. Uh, uh, what the most ridiculous instance of basically accidental discharge where some <laughs> schmuck has forgotten to put the safety on yeah. and it's gone off in the air. Right. Hopefully no one's died, but... No, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it, would be, it would be interesting to see some statistics perhaps um, comparing, let's say, misuse or accidental use of, of guns mm-hmm. and those other things before before people began comparing them because a lot of people say, you know, we have... Uh, cars are a good example, right? You know, you have that example of like, well, a lot more people die in car accidents but we don't think about banning cars. Mm-hmm. And in fact, no one's really suggesting banning guns. This has just been legislating ownership more in the same way that they do for cars. Yeah. Um, and I think perhaps the more interesting statistic would be to see how those things are, are misused uh, rather than how they're used properly. Yeah, I, I think the other interesting thing as well is um, if we look at these statistics of crimes that have been apprehended by citizens with guns, mm. it is vastly higher than the number of crimes committed. Yeah. So it's around 3 million uh, crimes are apprehended by citizens with guns, either using the guns on a criminal or simply displaying it. Yeah. Prevent a, a prevent an offence. Yeah. yeah, which but I mean, uh, in in terms of um, how to keep track of the guns in the UK if we were to ever uh, legalise for defence, I think one thing we could do is again similar to cars, make it so that uh, it is registered to you. Yeah. So that way, if there is ever an instance where you misuse it, where you know, you don't use it for defence, you use it for purposes to uh, use force or coercion mm. or, or kill someone, yeah. the police will know where it came from. Who the owner is, and they would be able to arrest them much faster. Yeah, so we have license plates on cars, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, but the, the technology is certainly there, isn't it? Oh, so yeah. To imprint shells and everything else, so you can it can be quite clear what gun has shot what bullet. I suppose. Oh yeah, just to a degree. I mean, I, I'd say I would say that though that uh, I don't I don't believe in the idea that um, uh, like in America where you can own as many guns as you want for defense. Yeah, it does. That, 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 that does seem sort of tied to that idea of a, like a free a free market capitalist economy, though. Of, you know, it does seem a lot of lobbying going on is mainly to keep that business of owning guns going. Um, and I think that is part of the problem. You know, at the point you own five guns, how are they going to sell you a sixth? Yeah. 
by making it bigger, have more rounds, shoot further, you know, and, and then that becomes an escalating problem. I can, I can see that being an issue, definitely. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, people uh, buy multiple guns for, for different reasons. Some mm. do it because uh, they they believe that they should have this many for defence, and so they sold it as their right. Yeah. Uh, some will do it for more issues of, like, um, they are collectors, like antique collectors, mm. so they collect antique guns. Um, some will uh, buy multiple guns because they are private trainers, and they train uh, people privately in the use of uh, different types of guns. Mm. Um, and, I mean... As we know, uh, I love America, but there there are the weird <laughs> ones who uh, have lots of guns because they think the end of the world is coming. Uh, yeah, that, that is a, yeah, that is an unfortunate <laughs> truth. Um, there are a lot of preppers, I imagine. Yes. If that's, if that's the right term. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an odd subject. I, I must admit, I, I I do think our our gun laws in this country are possibly too restrictive. Um, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying that everyone should have the right to own uh, private arms or even have the ability to apply for the right to own private arms for for defence. Um, so I tend to think that, that we already have that to a scale that we have, um, and if we keep the guns out of circulation, the need for guns to defend oneself from people with guns is naturally decreased. Um, you know, it just shows the amount of I don't know, the amount of stabbings we currently have in London. Um, I, I must admit, I'm very thankful that those gangs don't have open and easy access to guns. There isn't a commercial market for guns. Um, I think that's possibly a, a danger. Well, I mean, like, uh, there would obviously there would always be the possibility that they would acquire them, but um, I, I don't think they necessarily acquire them legally, uh, especially because a lot of the time they are they are much younger than the age of twenty five. Yes. And so, by the legal standard that I want to set, they would not be young enough. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a matter of. Um, I think I think it's a for me at least. I think it's a matter of once once one increases that um, that availability, once the, there's the industry behind it um, of of having guns available, um, then the market is going to be full of more guns, legal or otherwise. Um, and make that that by term will make it easier for people under the age of twenty five to get guns, um, you know, uh, simply by the proliferation of their existence. Yeah, I mean, this this is why I, I think it is more of an issue about culture rather than uh, yeah. number of guns equally uh, more gun crime because um, obviously while we have uh, guns legal to a certain extent, not for defence but for yeah. uh, hunting and sports. Yeah. Um, Shotgun, for example, we mentioned earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you can have it stored at a, at a range, or even store it in your home in a cabinet with the with the shelves far away. Yeah. I mean, this is why I sort of I disagree with the the, the argument that quite a few people try to push of the idea that uh, uh, guns being present in the country means there will be gun crime. It's like, well, not necessarily. It depends on the culture because what's to stop that person with a, a rifle for uh, sports just deciding, you know what, I'm going to take this gun out of the cabinet, put the bullets in it, and shoot my neighbor because it's I don't know his his dog uh, soiled on my garden or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I, I think I think I think there is there is definitely a strong correlation, um, which obviously doesn't necessarily imply a causation, but there is definitely a strong correlation between um, those few countries now that have uh, an innate right to own firearms and the amount of firearm deaths they have. Yeah, and, and I think it must, in some way, at least in, in my mind, it, it must tie to the the availability of said firearms, the availability of said weapons, which is going to allow people who are going to do the wrong things with them. To get out simply yeah. by that proliferation, um, that, that 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 is kind of worrying to me. Um, yeah, because it's just it's, it's a very easy thing to do in the heat of the moment. You know, as we said before, I think um, even if it comes down to suicide rates, we mentioned earlier, it, it's much easier to kill oneself if one has a handgun. Yeah, exactly. That but that's that's why I kind of think in America, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily uh, or solely even uh, a matter of the number of guns available. I, I think it's I think there is. I think there's more of an issue in terms of uh, mental health and how America handles mental health 
Um, and also, and also, I think it's a matter of. Uh, I think it's more of a matter also to do with how tribalistic um, a lot of Western countries are becoming. We're, we're sort of rejecting individualism in a way, and okay. we're sort of treating each other as simply members of groups. Yeah, we're sort of veering into the idea of identity politics here. Uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the tribalism that's that is currently uh, happening. I, I, th- I don't think it's solely identity politics. I, I think it extends on beyond that. Okay. Um, it's it's a, it's a type of tribalism that is fueled by both fear and at, at the same time, I suppose you could say ignorance. It, it, ignorance, yeah. I'd also say maybe something to do with. Um, the, the sort of idea that you know, we're we're stronger as as a group sort of idea. I I, th- I think we're taking that, uh, not just I don't think we're just looking at it as you know we're stronger as a group, so you know, let's work together to try to make things better. But looking at it from, I think we're taking it far too literally. Of because we're stronger as a group, we are not individuals. We are a group. We are a hive mind. Um, okay. And there's, there's there's problems on the left and the right. I mean the rights, uh, you know the. They have you know, their, their white identitarians on the right, people like you know, the, the National Front is yeah. a really good example. Um, and then there's the, the left-wing ones like uh, like Antifa. Yes. Which, I mean, uh, I always say Antifa, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I have zero tolerance for Antifa. Yes, um, I, I, am, I am aware of your, your stance yes. on this. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I view them as like a, just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Uh, I, Antifa are an identitarian tribalist group. Um, and people like the National Front are uh, the What's same the thing. Same, yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? Once once you define the in group, you're almost automatically, by exclusion, making an out group. Yeah, and, and this is actually uh, sort of leaked into the media in a way because okay. um, uh, a good example of this is when Kanye West came out saying he supports Donald Trump. Right. There was a uh, there was a uh, a news anchor on CNN, and um, like uh, I know it's an offensive term, but I'll use it to stress. What was said? He basically turned around and said, "Uh, uh you know, Kanye West, you are a traitor Negro." Yeah. As if African Americans have to have some certain sort sets of, of values by the yeah. nature of the color of their skin. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which I mean, maybe the problem in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's. I mean, that's that's quite a demeaning. That's quite a racist. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think I think though people are, are sort of bound to have an um an emotional reaction to these things. Um, and again, I think I think you're right. I think it is about in group out group, and I think. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about the history that America's had, and it's not just that of uprising against oppression. Like, let's be fair, there are some rather uh, unpleasant racial histories in there as well. Um, yeah. And I think that helps fuel the problems that they have. I, I just can't help feeling, from my point, that if it didn't have such easy and open access to firearms, the number of people being shot would drastically <laughs> decrease. And I just, I, I don't, I don't necessarily hear from you or from anyone for that matter, um, but in this room from you, uh, a counter argument to how removing those guns would not decrease the amount of people getting shot. Uh, the reason I would say that, I, I'd say this, I'd say there's two reasons. Um, but actually, no, more sort of three reasons. Um, one, because uh, it wouldn't stop the criminals from getting guns, because if a criminal wants to kill someone, they're going to kill someone, they'll find a way to do it. Mm. The second reason would be that if we look at uh, states and their gun crime statistics, yeah. I'm not saying it's a causation, but there's definitely a correlation because the states with the strictest gun laws have the most gun crimes. Uh, states like Texas, where there's open carry, there are very few gun crimes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's probably not a causation, uh, but there is definitely 
I think I think the problem with the United States is because it's divided up in such states, divided into states. There's that leak, you know. That there is that problem. I think uh, I think California probably an example of a one of the most um, progressive, regressive, whatever you want to put it, um, gun law state that allows very few guns, um, but it suffers hugely from leak from other states because yeah. um, it's very easy just to cross those borders. It's not like they're actually borders yeah, exactly. uh, in any real sense. So I, I don't know until until they have a cohesive, broad government, which I, is very anti-American, I suppose. Um, I don't see a way of, a way of defeating that. And, and that, that brings us back to the Second Amendment, which isn't even a practical way of doing it, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think ultimately, in terms of uh, trying to combat uh, gun crimes and trying, to, and ultimately trying to combat the, the tribalism, because I, I do believe the more tribalistic a society gets, the more violent it will get. Yes, yeah. because it just creates the us versus them of, mm. and uh, you know, if if you're meant to be part of the group and you stray a little, then that means that you're not actually part of it and you're against us. Yeah, so um, in group, out group, it's that, yeah. it's that basic principle. Yeah, I, I think the way that we need to try and. Uh, the way that we can try and lower gun crime is actually to try and combat that ideology. Mm. Because we know from the past, we know from the present, that uh, sort of cult-like ideologies cause violence. Yes, absolutely. I um, think we can broadly agree on yes. that. I think I, think I know your, your, your stance on theism, and it's, it's very similar to mine. Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree, but I think it does leave us in that position of, in a practical sense then. Um, because I think, I think ideally, I would like to remove the Second Amendment, remove the firearms in America, or at least drastically reduce them and bring them under government control. Um, but I, I think we can both admit that that's not practical. Yes. Um, even if even if it was a solution that you can advocate for. What, what is a possible solution? How does one go about dropping off what is probably one of the world's highest gun rates? Well, it's, gun crime. well it's interesting because um, uh, after one of the previous... Uh, mass shootings, I think it was either just before or after uh, Obama came into office. Right. Um, it was actually the Republicans who wanted to try and push for a bill mm. that would make it so that people would have to go through some sort of mental analysis to yeah. make sure they were mentally stable enough to be responsible with the gun. Mm. And it was actually the Democrats that rejected yeah. it on the notion that it would infringe on the rights of people with mental disabilities. Yeah. Yeah. So they were taking a. Oh yeah, I don't agree. I think I think we started this conversation by saying I don't think it's a left and right issue. I think I think politics definitely here, especially in the American system with lobbying and the NRA playing such a powerful role. They obviously have a vested interest in keeping as many as many firearms as freely available as possible. They they make a lot of money from it. Let's be honest. Um, but yeah, what, what what do we do about it as a practical solution? How do we how do we reduce that? I it's think tough, right? it's it's a very tough question because again, the matter of culture and. I think there are steps we can that are well not we I think there are steps that America can take in order to start reducing it. Okay. Um, I mean, I mean, before I go over that, I'll go over the 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 option that would be the most obvious but is the most difficult that would allow people to still keep guns. Right. Uh, which is it's it sounds a bit sort of conspiratorial, but it's shutting down the uh, the the deep the, the deep web. Okay. okay. The dark web. Yeah. Um, okay. Because um, uh, through like a like a different internet uh, browsers, you can yeah. browse without tracking, and it's through these means that a lot of illegal guns are bought and shipped. And so, I think one way of doing it would be to shut that down. The problem is, um, I can't remember whether it was the I can't remember which uh, government organisation it was that uh, uses the 
the uh, the deep web to try and get information about different terrorist organizations right. because they can't be tracked. Yeah. And so you'd risk national security just to shut down yeah. the black market. So no, that, that's fair. And so that's but I'd say the uh, the practical options would be America needs to ensure that there is some sort of mental analysis, like some sort of psychological analysis or uh, some sort of mental evaluation mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that the person posting the gun, even if they don't have a criminal background, is mentally responsible to own a gun. Yeah. The second option would be to potentially increase the, the age, I think. Okay. Uh, and the third option would be relating to uh, to school shootings. A lot of the time, the, the kids will get a hold of the gun from parents. Yeah, not directly from the parents, usually indirectly because the parents have been irresponsible and stored yeah. somewhere that the kid can get it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we need to try and have some sort of uh, punishment to the parents uh, for being completely irresponsible of letting the gun inside of their child. Yeah. Because clearly has some sort of... the responsibility of the gun owner rather than the shooter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that, that does bring me back then to the that begs the question. I must say, of then it is the gun that is the problem because had that child not been able to get hold of a gun, could that have then prevented that crime? One way of making sure they wouldn't get hold of a gun was for that gun not to be there. But then, of course, the other thing to to look into is the fact that a lot of uh, mass shooters at schools they later on after investigations have happened, you find out that they have some sort of mental issue. Yeah, and so it brings us back to that. Well, I think I think if you want to take a gun and shoot a bunch of people. You almost by definition have a mental issue. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't think that's in dispute. I think the problem here, though, is without um, heavily amending or revising the Second Amendment, that's not really going to be possible because you're, you're essentially saying that people can only have rights if they're not mentally ill. And where does that lead? There's a definite, yeah, there's a definite slope there, isn't and there? And that's that's not politically uh, politically popular. That won't no. that won't get you votes to say that if you have a. I don't know if it's just politically popular. I don't, I don't know if it's if it's morally correct. Oh, yeah, if you're exactly. going to have a bill of rights, and one of those rights is that everyone has the right to bear arms, you can't then start putting amendments on it and saying, well, you have the right to bear arms as long as you're uh, a culpable person who knows how to use a firearm and isn't mentally ill, and you know, yeah, I, I, either I, you can have them, we can't. Yeah, I, I think if you were to do that, you have to distinguish uh, mental illness that impairs you from responsibility. Yeah. Because, I mean, for example, uh, if you were to take something like, say, uh, high-functioning autism. Right. I mean, most people with high-functioning autism, they, they can be responsible. Yeah. Um, if you were to take, if you were to compare it with, say, something like low-functioning, where you need almost 24-hour yeah. care, you're not in that state of mind to be able to make those conscious decisions yeah. of responsibility. Um, if we take another example, so, for example, if you're someone that has, say, uh, let's say, anxiety, I that's uh, in a, it, I don't think that should stop you from owning a gun. Right. But at the same time, if we were to take something, I'm not sure what a lot of anxious people walking around with firearms. <laughs> but yeah. But but at the same time, if you take it to the even more extreme side of like say like severe paranoia. Yeah. You should not be owning a gun if you have right. some really severe paranoia. So I, I think it really depends on. But again, doesn't that just take us back to them? We have to remove the Second Amendment. I think we as in America, but doesn't that mean that just they have to remove the Second Amendment and replace it with something else? Again, that's the problem. It's, it's, uh, that's, and as we discussed, it's, 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 whether you want free ownership of guns or not, that, that's not practical. It's not. And so, uh, ultimately, I think I just have to say that I have absolutely no idea. No, no that's, no, that's <laughs> fair. I, I, I don't either. Yeah. And I stand on the opposite side of the issue. Um, I, I think, you know, I don't know how you would go about it. I think, to me, though, I think the proliferation of the amount of guns um, in America is, is terrifying, first of all. And I, I think it does speak to that, that, possible causation. Um, I think there's a very obvious correlation, but you know they're, they're one of, I think, now three, Ameri- three countries in the world 
um, who have a, a Bill of Rights, and in that Bill of Rights there is the right to bear arms, yeah. um, and all three of them are in the top five for shootings. I, it's... I, I, think, I think that's actually... Uh, I, I think that wording is actually... Because there's a, there's a full bit, isn't there? They say um, the, the right to bear arms and form a militia to rise up against the tyrannical government. There's a whole part, right? Yeah. And people just sort of take out that, well, right to bear arms. It's like, well, there's a whole lot of responsibility that goes along with that. Exactly, like, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I think is a, a massive misconception when it comes mm. to the term freedom. Uh, people seem to think that freedom just means you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, no matter the consequences, no matter who you hurt. Uh, no, that's not the case. No. With freedom comes responsibility. Yeah. Um, it's It doesn't, you know, if you have freedom, you have to take your actions and responsibilities that come with those actions. Yeah. Um, so for me, example, um, in all technicality, I have the freedom to go into a shop and steal. Yes. Uh, but there are the consequences of that. For sure. And I, I guess, I guess the, the, the counter-argument, and I'm, I'm suddenly flipping positions in here, would be that, that there is already a punishment for shooting people with guns. Um, but it doesn't seem to deter it happening. It doesn't seem to stop it happening. Yeah. So, so to me, I keep coming back to this, and I must admit, as I said sort of earlier on, I think that our gun laws are possibly too restrictive. Um, I'm quite a fan of guns. I enjoy shooting when I'm in other countries and where I'm allowed to. Um, and, you know, I, I, I quite enjoy doing it. And, and I think there is a, a recreational use for them. Um, I'm not sure I agree with the personal defence thing, but that, that proliferation of guns, the number of them that are available in a society, seems to me to be innately the problem. And I, I can't find a way around that. Um, yeah. Because in all practical terms, that seems to be the issue. I, I, I think one of the biggest problems that's sort of led down this way is... Um... One of the things that I would want, I would want to make different here if we were to legalise in court offence, mm. and it's that keyword, right. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, as the your rights are your right to live, your right to speak, your right to think, your right to choice. You don't have a right to own something. Yes, absolutely agree. I mean, to be fair, that that's that's the way that America was founded. Was it the thirteenth or fourteenth? The right to own slaves. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, which obviously was removed. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> precisely. But uh, to to me. Um, uh, I kind of view the Second Amendment in a similar way. Um, I think it's damaging to their society. Um, I don't think it's practical to remove it, but I do. I do think it, that that is the root of the problem. Right? It's saying that people have a right to own something, whether it's another person or a lethal weapon. I don't know if that's yeah, I, I a think great I, idea. I, I, I think if they were to reword it to something like a, the, the right to self defence is uh, 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 unremovable, mm. but the the luxury of gun ownership. Yeah, uh, must be acquired through responsibility. Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, like you're saying, like the, the right to walk to Edinburgh is is innate, but the right to drive is a, is a luxury for which you must pay and pass tests and be responsible. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, the moment you say that you have a right to a product or to a service, I mean, that's the whole. Then we're getting into the whole issue of negative rights versus positive. Yes. Rights. The second thing we're going to talk about this evening is abortion. Um, I don't know if you want to start with your, your personal stance on it, or the libertarian official line, or whatever you want to go with. Okay, so the uh, the libertarian stance on abortion, uh, it doesn't really have a official stance of being pro-life or pro-choice. Uh, it takes more of the stance of the government should not ban abortion, and it should not uh, be funding it or forcing women to have abortions. Um, my personal view on abortion is uh, it's, it's a little... It's a little complicated because I've never actually been able to get it across eloquently without people 
misinterpreting what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's so definitely a very emotional issue, right? I think people get is. very head up about it. It definitely is, yeah. So I, mean, I will try to get this uh, across as uh, eloquently as possible. Go for it. Um, I take a sort of... Overall, I would say that I'm a pro-life idealist. But banning abortion and regulating it is just not practical. Yeah. Um, I don't really agree in banning many things, just like banning, uh, banning drugs. It will only lead to worse things rather than yeah. better things. Yeah. Um, Backstreet abortions, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's why I sort of see myself more as an idealist. I, I believe in the potential of life, right. but I recognise that being pro-life as a sort of a, a solution is not practical. Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, it's especially because ultimately what I'd like to see is to try and find some sort of medical scientific advancement where we find an alternative for abortion, where the potential life is given the opportunity to be alive, but the woman is given a choice. Yeah. And so uh, the sort of idea that comes to mind, it's, it's very, very sci-fi, but <laughs> the, uh, the idea I have in my mind of like what would be the perfect solution would be um, if we had a way of transplanting the, the fetus inside uh, the womb to a woman who wants yeah, yeah. to yeah, yeah. I, I can agree to an extent I, I think yes I think one of the main problems I have with, with pro-life is that it, it seems to end at the point of birth um, which I think is definitely hypocrisy that's there I think you know, there's no one in the pro-life movement for example who would advocate uh, if a baby was born several weeks after its birth we find it has a, a unique bone marrow problem and the only person able to um, donate bone marrow would be the father he then absolutely shouldn't be or shouldn't be forced by law to give his bone marrow to the child to keep it alive. But the same thing was not true only a few months earlier of the woman. Yeah. And, and to me, that there's an obvious, I think, hypocrisy there in, in, in pro-life. I don't know if you agree, yeah. but... Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, uh, the, the, there is a... I don't think it's necessarily a uh, hypocrisy, but there, there's definitely... Um, there's definitely a practical issue. It's, yeah. as I said, it's not practical. Um, I, especially because, like, you know, if, if you take more sort of, like, a libertarian stance, I mean, it's... I imagine it must be really difficult to be pro-life in like a, a dedicated sense of you're not seeing it as an ideal seeing it as something that can be practically uh, achieved in a practical way it must be very difficult because that means that you have to essentially force uh, a woman to have a child so yes. you, are, you are negating the right of choice yes and so I, I think what would be better would be to look at individual circumstances and see how we can reduce it in those areas so okay. uh, an example I usually give is um, there will be cases where a woman doesn't necessarily want to have an abortion, but she has to because the, the father uh, walks out. Because sure. he found out that she's pregnant and he's walked out from the situation. There's no way she could afford to raise this child and doesn't want to. Yeah, yeah. and so I think, um, so you know, should we be forcing uh, men to stay with uh, their partners? No, because right. that, that that's the issue of freedom of choice. What we can do is, I think, uh, try to educate young men on you know, how to be responsible, how to stand yeah. by their partners in difficult circumstances. Um, obviously, that's something that can be. Taught but again, to that's going to. But again, I think that's maybe going to remove that choice, isn't it? What if, what if the, the father equally doesn't want to raise a child? You know, yeah. or, or, or people may become, or couples may become pregnant, and then neither of them may want to have the child or keep it. And so, that in that case, is that okay? Uh, I don't know. I think yeah, to me, it, it seems like there's, there's a double standard because I think I think um, they're, they're, those people that are, I think, pro-life um, are very much advocating that a fetus is equivalent to a human. Oh yeah, no, we disagree with that. Yeah, I, I, I would actually disagree with that. that that's why I say, yeah, that's that's why I think it would make more sense for me to say I'm pro-life idealist. It would make more sense for me to say I'm pro the 
opportunity of the potential. Like it would make more right. sense for me to say that because it's sure. not yet a life, sure. but it has the potential to become a life. Yeah, absolutely. And that context, I think those common arguments that I hear apologists use about uh, people in comas and things like that, where they say, well, so, you know, just because it's not conscious, if that person is conscious, doesn't mean they're not going to be at some point in the future. You shouldn't be allowed to to just kill them out of convenience. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, fair enough. All right. But as far as far as abortion goes itself, you wouldn't, you, you don't want to see it banned. You no. also don't think the government should be funding it, which is interesting because um, I guess even even with your your theoretical solution, um, you know, where, where we come up with some technological way of removing fetuses and, and planting the people who want them or growing them in test tubes or whatever that's going to yeah. look like, that's going to cost money. Yeah. So again, if the government's not going to fund that, then it becomes there's an inequity there. Well, I can't afford it. Well, I mean, I, th- I think it would have to be a matter of like a, the person that wants to have the child like implanted into them would be the one to pay for it, right? Um, uh, and obviously, like uh, that's getting to the issues of healthcare. Um, yeah. Okay, so so if, maybe if we try and boil this right down, then um, what about somebody who doesn't just not want the child themselves, but doesn't believe that a child should be born? Who disagrees with this concept of uh, that everything has a right to life or things should be born? Perhaps someone who, uh, for quite reasonable ecological grounds, might decide that actually increasing the number of humans is probably not a good idea. And they decide, actually, you know, I don't want a child, and I want this child to be born, I don't want to be part of somebody else, I simply want to terminate this, this pregnancy. Um, I know it's more of a grey area, but I just want to see kind of where you go it, def- it. it definitely is a grey area, but I mean, I would say while it would contradict my values of, uh, you know, uh, the opportunity of a potential life, I would at the same time say, I... Ultimately, I cannot force, and neither should the government force the woman to have the child, right. uh, even if she doesn't think it should be born. I, I don't have the the right or the authority to say you know you, know, you must have this child. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I kind of see I kind of see a dilemma there. You know, uh, there's a definite problem there with. Um, I think it kind of comes down to in the same way that, that that child may have the right to life, it also isn't giving consent to be born. So, for me, those two liberties are, uh, they're mutually exclusive, but they're both, from um, at least from like a, a philosophical standpoint, they're both liberties that you'd be yeah. removing from them. But, you know, what if the child what if the child is born and in 20 years decide, decides to commit suicide because he never wants to be born in the first place? You know, to me, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy, um, quite how we get past it. Um, well, I mean, that, that gets into, obviously, that gets into the subject of suicide, and uh, I would yeah. say because of freedom of choice, um, although obviously it's a horrible thing, I would say if someone wants to end their life, I'd say ultimately their life is theirs, they okay. own their life. I mean, so assisted dying while we're on the topic? Uh, I would say, I'm, honestly, I'd say I'm all for it. Yeah. Because uh, I, I think, I <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I said, like it's it's your life, you know, you own your body, you own your essence. Yeah. Um, you know, Whatever the, you believe that to be. You know, if you want yeah. to end that, then... Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, the the purest form of a property, of private property we have as individuals is our own body. Yeah, and so we should be able to do what we want with it. Uh, so if that means that we want to make it uh, unactive and you know end it, then yeah. uh, ultimately, although it may be horrible, it is your it's your choice. Yeah, yeah. It may not be horrible. I think I think there are lots of examples where it's a good thing. Right? If you're if you're suffering from a terminal illness. Oh, yeah. and it's going to be degenerative and, and unpleasant and actually going well I want to go to Switzerland and take a, a special cocktail and not have to worry about it, it oh, yeah. seems I mean, a legitimate choice to me I'm not, yeah. I'm not I mean, it's, obviously it sort of relates to like what we were saying about, uh, about uh, gun crime statistics mm-hmm. in the US about how uh, a portion of them are down to suicides yeah. um, obviously we should do something to try and prevent suicide that is based on depression 
Yeah. But at the same time, you shouldn't be turning around and saying that if you attempt to commit a crime, then you will go to jail. Because yeah, I mean, that's like the way that's, it used to be, right? Back in the 60s yeah. and 70s in this country. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's just ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's very odd to me. <laughs> I think it was punished by the death penalty at one point as well, which <laughs> is just absolutely bizarre, purpose. right? Because it was, it was equivalent to homicide. Um, it's just, just very, very bizarre. That's, that's, that is just a very... Yeah, I know, how, right? How dare you try to commit suicide? You're going to die now. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a win-win for them, I guess, but still, um, very odd. But yeah, okay, so, so abortion, not necessarily pro-life, not anti-abortion as such, but you'd like to see an alternative to it. Yeah, I'd like to see some sort of alternative, because, uh, I mean, I, 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 th- I think most people... But doesn't that, that, doesn't that, sorry, I know I'm doing this again, but doesn't that leave us with the same problem? Doesn't that, that mean that something may be born without giving its consent to be born? Isn't that the same liberty that we remove, or it's a liberty we're removing? No. Uh, it it depends on when you think. I, I suppose it depends on really when you think rights begin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do they begin before birth? Because I think I think the point if they, if they do, which would be the the pro life argument, then they'd also have the right to choose not to be born. That's the I don't, <laughs> it's, it's that's, that's, that's that's why I use the uh, that's why. I, Try to make the key distinction between like a you know pro life and pro the opportunity or the potential. Yeah, I think you know it's it's it is a potential life and it should be it, we should try to give it the opportunity to become a life so yeah. it can be born with these inalienable rights. Um, so okay. I, I think uh, so rights begin at, at the point of birth. For you? I think rights begin at the point of birth, um, but I definitely think that we should uh, at least we should try to ensure that. Uh, potential life is given the opportunity to become it but not through you know uh government forcing women to say you have to mm. give this mm. uh, potential life you've opportunity to become it right uh, i think while it's in that while it's in that potential uh it isn't it doesn't have the rights that it's born with yet no. it's only, it is only a potential and so yeah that leads down to a real rabbit hole right because um at what point does the potential of life start you know does that start with semen does that start with ovaries you know, should masturbation be made illegal? Because <laughs> essentially, you're removing potential life. I mean, that that yeah. is the argument, right? You're you're not allowing potential life to come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, this is this is why I, this is why I recognise that uh, ultimately it's it's very much an ideal because yeah. it's not it's just not practically possible to try and make that distinction. I mean, there there are, there are certain parts where we can say uh, it's a viable life, yeah. uh, certainly. Um, what if it's decided that it's not viable? Then? You know, at the point that um, a fetus or pre-birth, whatever you want to call it, it is is clearly not viable. It's gonna is going to have to live with some significant physical disabilities. Um, you know, at what point can you draw a line and say that abortion is better than being born? Um, I would say ultimately it comes down to again where you think the rights begin. Yeah. Um, if you think the rights begin the moment you know the semen hits the egg, egg yeah. yeah, then then uh, there's not really much option for you. But I mean, if, if you, yeah. Uh, that's why I take the stance that you know the rights don't begin until birth, and up until then it's just a potential. So if it is born with a defect, ultimately, again, uh, while I mean, um, but we could know. We we could know, for example, that child is has a ninety percent chance of dying in its first two months. Hmm. Is that a good enough reason to abort the fetus, regardless of where it's transplanted, or should we let that life come to fruition and give it that ten percent chance of success? Um, I'd I'd say. There's a 90% chance, I think, of you know, severe suffering and death. Yeah, What's the moral right? It's a grey area, right? But I don't know what the moral right thing is. It, it is a very grey area. Um, that's, that's why I think when it comes... That's why I think, you know, ultimately, when it comes to abortion, it shouldn't be 
uh, you know, government banning it, government funding it, or government forcing it, forcing okay. it to happen. Uh, ultimately, it can it can really only be you know. Be Does the government ever force people to have abortions? Uh, in China, they used to. Uh, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think even people who are like strongly pro-life will say no. That's that's really that's wrong. I think. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I can say that. Yeah, a forced abortion is definitely wrong. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I suppose abortion is always forced on the fetus. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting. Interesting discussion to have, but. Because I think this is the one that's going to get us. It's going to take a bit more time, I think. Uh, which is free speech. Um, our third and final topic for this evening. Um, so we start by laying out our positions, I guess. Um, yes. Okay, Frank. What's, what's your position on free speech? Okay. Um, my my position on free speech is free speech is uh, an absolute. It's not a conditional offer. Um, each individual should be able to say what they like. Um, but that doesn't obviously that does not mean that there are no consequences. I just don't believe there should be government legal consequences to things that they say. Um, the reason I take that stance is free speech is in essence it is you putting your very being your very character forward, and so to to regulate speech would be to regulate certain types of characters, certain types of people. Yeah. Uh, Straight into thought crime for you? Um, well, in terms of like a regulating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would also say thoughts as well. Yeah, you should be able to freely think what you're Absolutely. I, I, yeah, this is, I think, where we're going to agree. That's why I thought I'd bring it up. It's definitely yeah, going to concur. I mean, I mean uh, the sort of thing I mean when it comes to, like, say, uh, consequences is not legal or government enforced consequences, it's more social consequences. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, everything everything that is said should be open to criticism, no matter how uh, subjectively good or subjectively bad it is. Yeah. Um, and I think free free speech doesn't just mean you know, a racist can walk down the street and say something racist, and people just have to put up with it. Right. I mean, they also have the power of free speech. They yeah. use their free speech to challenge, to criticize, to mock, uh, to insult the racist. Right. Or they but not to physically attack, or no, it's no definitely not physically attack. Right. Um, and you know you can also use your free speech to try to spread the message to other people that you know this is what this person said. Mm. And try to uh, encourage people to not associate with them. Yeah, that makes it so that they are ostracized from their community for what they have said. They they face no legal consequences, but they have faced the social consequences of the fact that they have lost uh, the respect of all their peers. They have uh, been mocked. They've been challenged. They've been criticized. Um, okay, so I guess. Um so I think we're going to differ if I quickly lay out my position and then we'll get back to it because I don't want to go back and forth too much. But I think, in essence, I agree. I, I think there's no such thing as thought crime. Um, you know, one, one can't be stopped from thinking whatever one wants and there's no harm in thinking about any particular thing you want to think about. Um, even if they acting upon that would be consequential or illegal. And I think, to my mind at least, speaking is a form of action. Um, and I think this is where we, we differ a bit. Um, thinking to me, speaking rather, isn't just an expression of thought. It is bringing a thought into action. So in the same way I might think about murdering my boss, um, if I did it, it would be illegal. Um, I think the same thing would be said that if, if I incited hatred or I incited violence, uh, that's, that becomes a problem. 
that's the issue though, because it depends on whether you class incitement to violence as protected under free speech. Do you? Um, no, I don't actually classify it as speech. Okay. Because I, I would actually agree with you that it is that when you are inciting violence, it is a call to action. Yeah. Um, but all you're doing is, is, is using your freedom of speech, though, right? You're just, you're just speaking your thoughts. No, because obviously, um, you know, with uh, with incitement to violence, it is more than just uh, speaking. You are correct. You are calling for violence to be made. So, for example, um, you know, if I could turn around to someone and say, uh, you know, I really don't like your face. I wish someone would uh, slap you. Yeah. Um, that's you might make jokes about Mexicans. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, mm. if I was to turn around and say, I really don't like your face. I'm going to stab it. Yes. Yeah. That's that's, yeah. A, that's a call to action. That's a threat. Right. Um, I guess for me, though, I, I guess how, how distinct does that threat have to be before it becomes a problem? You know, I, I think from demagogues throughout history, we've seen very few of them, at least initially, have calls to immediate violence. Um, you know, they'll, they'll subjugate certain groups of people and dehumanise them and then allow the violence to naturally occur. But they, they know full well what they're doing um, by using their freedom of speech. Um, and to me, I think that that's where that intolerance begins. Um, and yeah, I, I think we have to be intolerant of that intolerance, uh, which is a, obviously a, a paradox, but it's, it's an important one, I think, because otherwise all you're left with is intolerance. But the issue is, though, how do you um, how do you try to control that intolerance? And also the thing is, though, if, if we... Like, uh, if we By being we, intolerant of it. The thing is, if, if we start to... Like, if we, like... Because um, I imagine, like, you're talking, like, you say, like, uh, offensive language, like, racist language, I imagine you're talking about what we Not necessarily, no. I, I, don't, I don't think... Uh, I don't necessarily... I think... I think um, it's when uh, somebody's speech it has an intended outcome. So if, if you're making a speech, say, politically, uh, and you dehumanise or criticise a specific race of people, or a specific subset of, 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 uh, of the society, you're obviously attempting to to make a, a, an outcome. An outcome may be violent, it may not be, but it'll certainly be, certainly be social and economic. And at that point, the only distinction between um, something that's, say, for example, simply economic, and something that is motivated by by other means is intolerance and I think if we're not intolerant of that tolerance then very quickly intolerance becomes all there is because you no longer have tolerance well I, as I think it depends on like how you uh, define being intolerant to intolerance um, okay uh, I would not I would I'm not, not saying I'm not saying well, I wouldn't go as far as saying punch a knot um, I think I, there was a point I think where I did kind of agree with that um, I think I'm very much past that now um, but yeah I'm not. I'm not saying that, but I think you have to say that actually some kinds of intolerance shouldn't shouldn't be tolerated, because by being intolerant of intolerance, you are going to reduce the overall amount of intolerance, which is surely positive. But the thing is, if we start um, if we start selecting which type of intolerance that we will be intolerant to, are we not giving a then privilege to you can be offensive towards this, but you cannot towards this? Um, I don't know if it's about offence though. I, I think I think offence is largely how people take something, um, and that could be all kinds of ways. It can be cultural, it can be uh, language barriers, and all sorts of things. But I think if you're if you're clearly um, doing certain things, if you're if you're clearly um, demonising or dehumanising certain subjects of society, that's something we need to be intolerant of, and we'd say no, you legally can't do that. You know, um, and it doesn't have to go for me. It doesn't have to go as far as saying you know we have to kill all the blacks, right? <laughs> Simply to say black people aren't human, or simply say that black people aren't the same as humans as white people, for me, is enough of an intolerance to say, well, that, that's clearly what, that, what that's intended to mean, and that's going to have outcomes further down the line if we don't stop it now.
But again, it, it depends on like a again, it depends on like what you mean by like an intolerance intolerance and like how you sort of how you wish to deal with that. Because well, I making it illegal. I honestly disagree. Yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I do not believe in like a making any sort of uh, any sort of opinions that are generated by speech illegal unless okay. unless unless it is a direct call to violence. Um, so I, there is a line for you. It's just slightly further along. There's a line, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's a matter of like a of a, I, I I would say it's a matter of I don't class that as just purely speech. Right, um, because it's a incitement to violence, and it's a it's a means of trying to control people. Uh, Surely, all speech is trying, trying to control to, trying to when you get down to it. I mean, you're, you're you're trying to evoke a particular reaction, or trying to get someone to understand your point of view. Um, whatever your speech may be, I, I think it's definitely an attempt to control, coerce people not, in some way. Not necessarily coerce, but it's it's um it's definitely to some degree or another. It's definitely a way of trying to uh, persuade. Vince. Yeah. So I mean, when but if I persuade and convince people that black people are human, then we go down that line, right? That's... But so the reason I make the distinction between uh, uh, calls like a uh, calls for violence. Yeah. Uh, I, I, to be honest, I, I probably put in there like a sort of like a stalking someone via like a, a phone, for example. Yeah. Um, the reason I'd say I'd add that as well is because it is a means of trying to. Uh, it is a means of trying to use force. It is a means of trying to coerce. Right. And try to apply emotional and mental damage to the person, and through that emotional and mental damage, you gain control of them. With uh, incitement to violence, it is a way of trying to coerce someone without taking into consideration their own willful decision to do that voluntarily. Mm. Okay. So, like for example, if I say, so for example, if I say to you, uh, if I had like say a gun, let's say, give me your wallet, or I'll shoot you. I mean. That's not just speech. That's me. Okay, yes, yeah, absolutely. The presence of the gun as well. That's yeah. There's... That's a factor. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a big factor. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, even taking the gun out of it, like using the threat of violence to try and get something out of you. Right. Um, that is not me trying to persuade you. That's me trying to coerce you. Isn't that largely though? Sorry, I know I keep cutting you off, but isn't that largely how societies function as a whole anyway? Society only really functions via violence or threat of violence. Right? I mean. Otherwise, how do we how do we enforce any kind of legal structure? Well, I mean, like uh, I, I I could be cynical and just say like yeah, like a uh, that's just the way the government like uh, sees it because I mean like ultimately, ultimately the government has a, a privileged monopoly over violence. They can use violence without getting into any sort of legal trouble. Yeah, I mean, they um, make the laws. Yeah, but I mean that's that's why I would say that. Um, but surely, um, surely that that last my point again. I I think there's a point where we're going to meet up again philosophically because there has to be a point where you say if someone commits a crime. The police must be allowed to use violence to detain that person. That's acceptable. Yeah, because it's in the purpose of uh, defending uh, the general public, and that's why we are. I'm in favour of uh, guns being legalised for yeah. purposes of yeah. defence. Um, that's, that's but, but again, if I, if I, if my argument, I guess, would come from that point of view of that at the point you've made, uh, you've used your freedom of speech to be significantly intolerant of others. That, then stopping that would be in the great public interest, and if the need to use violence occurs to do that threat of violence, i.e. a legal, government-bound, you know, um, decision, I'm all in favour of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I disagree, but I, yeah. but uh, I, I would definitely say that, you know, like, the social consequences don't just have to come down to, you know, he said something very bad, so criticise him, or, you know, ostracise himself from him. It can also come down to, uh, for example, if you are having a rally, for 
example, like yeah. uh, somewhere that you've uh, rented. Um, yeah. And you start to espouse like racial hatred. Mm-hmm. That company is is more within their right to decide to deplatform you and inform other venues to not to do the same. But the, let's say, let's say, for example, that um, this this individual who's inciting I don't know racial hatred, for example, um, has a group of followers who agree with them. So your argument would be that they they would be allowed to hold a rally to discuss these things, and that would be morally okay. Uh, it wouldn't be morally okay, but it right. would be within their right to, to do so. And they shouldn't be legally stopped from doing it. They shouldn't be legally stopped. But as I said, if the, the venue realises what they are espousing, like it is yeah. you know, racial hatred, like for example, let's let's say it's not as far as saying, you know, kill X people. Um, let's say it was uh, something along the lines of trying to, as I say, dehumanise. Uh, let's say they're trying to dehumanise um, Asian people. Sure. Uh, say, let's say they were saying something along the lines of... Um, uh, Asian uh, Asian people do so well in schools that uh, our our white red children are not are being pushed back yeah. to try and support these, so we need to reject them from schools. Yeah, and we need to kick them out of the country or something like that. The venue themselves can decide. You know, this is morally wrong. They are sure. saying so. We are going to we're going to shut this down because I think we're not going to allow them the, the liberty to use our property. Yeah, because it's, yeah. it's, it's their property, and they yeah. can form other venues. They can yeah. form other services and uh, providers. But you don't think this is where this will be different. I think you don't think the government should step in and say that you can't say that. Yeah, I don't think the government should come and say that. But I do okay. think that there is, I think there is definitely uh, a wide range of what can fit under social consequences. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I, I think yeah, I think what we really come down to it is that you you put a very fine definition on what freedom of speech entails. Um, I think that there's a point there where you say, you know, at the point you directly incite violence, we can both agree that's wrong. Yeah. I think my point just comes earlier. Um, I think that the point there's, there's the implication of, of, of uh, inciting violence, or there's the implication of being able to incite violence or dehumanising people, which, which I would probably tar with the same brush. Uh, and what I, I don't really understand is, is in your mind, um, what's the difference? Uh, the difference is the fact that, uh, the difference is no violence has been called for. Um, Not directly. Not directly, no. Um, but an indirect call for you know, a whistleblowing situation, um, which we know lots of people do, and we were yeah. talking about some a little while ago, um, that, that to me is a much, uh, is, an, is a speech desi- designed to have an intended effect. Yeah. Um, and simply because they're not using X, Y, or Z words or X, Y, or Z terms, they say, well, I won't stab all the Jews or whatever the hell it happens to be. Um, Nazis was the classic one that seemed to come back to, I think. Uh, it's a really good example of when yeah. the, this happened through the thing, through the reasoning that the people didn't shut down that speech. Um, you know, it doesn't have doesn't have to be directly implied. I, I think I think you can simply dehumanizing people is going to lead to a point where it'll then later become acceptable. It'll stretch that right out. Uh, you know, to, to to directly incite violence then becomes an acceptable right. I think my biggest issue with uh, making it illegal to say those certain things mm. is it will just lead to the same way that it always has led to, where that type of ideology will go underground. We won't be able to see it. We won't be able to find it. We won't know yeah. how much it grows. Um, I mean, if, if we look That's at... A point, yeah. If, if we look at a lot of the dictators of the past, a lot of them had their speech shut down mm. and they were forced underground. We couldn't see them. We couldn't hear them. They just grew more extreme, more extreme, more extreme until they had gathered so many followers underground 
that when they finally rose, it came as to us as a surprise, and we had no idea how to actually combat it. Okay, yeah, that, that, that's actually that's actually an interesting point. One I hadn't actually considered that. Point. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think to me, I, I don't know. It's difficult. I think um, I can definitely agree with the, the idea that, that socially there has to be constraints, and I think that will naturally occur generally, right? As long as we have an educated populace. Um, but yeah, I, I don't. I don't necessarily see a problem with legally stopping people from saying certain things, because I, I think to, to me that's an extension. I think thought crime for me is where the line ends, right? So I think you can think whatever you want. Beyond that, anything, including speech, is an action, and like an action of any sort, there's a point where I feel it should be illegal and state mandated as being that. Please, I, I would actually say that uh, social consequences can also extend to like a like I was saying with a private venue. Mm. It can. It it can expand a bit further than that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, like, a, say, for example, a social media can, uh, site can decide what type of uh, language yeah. they're going to allow on that platform. Facebook, for example, yeah, right? Facebook. It bans people all the time. Yeah, I mean, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, you know, although I may not like it, if I don't want to, uh, if I want to be able to say things I'm not allowed to say on there, I can go to a different platform. Yeah. Uh, that platform making rules for its own platform, which, you know, it, you know, it has guidelines. It has a. Okay. It has rules. Um, What's the difference though between that and a government doing that? Uh, so to me, I, I, it seems very much the same thing. Uh, the difference would be that you voluntarily decide to go onto that platform. Right. Okay. Whereas, Whereas the government is forced to point. Yeah. Okay. So you know, if if I make the voluntary decision to go onto Facebook, I have to follow their guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. That that's like or risk being. Yeah, that's, that's the that's the consumer provider relationship. You know, uh-huh. We both agree to the terms, um, but with the government, it's not really a matter of you agree to the terms. It's a matter of this is the law. Uh, if you don't like it um, and you use this language, you will go to jail. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you you, know, you just have no choice. There's no right. there's no voluntary action there. I guess. Uh, I suppose, though, like, like you said, there has to be a line, right? And the direct incitement to violence is, it sounds like, your your line. Um, yeah. I guess mine just comes a bit earlier, which is kind of disappointing because I thought we'd disagree a lot more on this. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think in principle we're saying, we're saying largely the same thing, right? That um, there are certain types of speech that shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, I mean... Just yours know, is, is, yeah, is my, mine's the incitement to violence. I mean, like, um, it's, it's a bit like what you were saying earlier about um, uh, the say, uh, Christian cake maker who refused yeah. to like uh, serve uh, the gay couple. Mm-hmm. Um, if we if we take that into the context of like a uh, uh, say a black person going to a uh, an establishment to do business, yeah. Um, let's let's say that law was in effect where they could not say anything that was like a dehumanizing to that degree. Mm-hmm. How would that person know that they are being served by a racist? We're essentially yeah. making it so that. There's not any sort of social punishment then for the racist because, like, the punishment is so severe to the point where he's sent to jail mm-hmm. that he decides to go underground with his views. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I guess larger than that, that, that's a point of what the the legal consequences would be. I don't know that necessarily. I mean, you know, the punishment should fit the crime. You know, I don't know that necessarily someone should for, for using uh, offensive language is going to be sent to jail. I'm definitely not um, advocating that that an extreme of you, um, but somewhere between the two, I, I think it comes sooner than directly inciting violence. Though for me, I think I think if you're deliberately dehumanising people, if you're deliberately minoritising people, if you're deliberately forcing apart the populace, then 
that in and of itself should be an actionable crime. I mean, I think we definitely agree that it needs to be challenged. Um, yeah. But I would say, like, if with the, the example of the black man going into the racist uh, yeah. shop without knowing he's a racist, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's flip it. Let's make it so... Let's imagine that there's, there's, there's no crime whatsoever. Yeah. To turn around to a black person calling the N-word in, yeah. the, in your shop and, you know, say you know, loads of horrible things to them. Mm-hmm. Because of the way that society is now and how it's so connected with social media, and with the fact that uh, the culture is growing more and more intolerant towards racism, yeah, uh, that business would not last very long. No, that black person would walk out the bus- uh, out of the uh, building. They would tell their friends, their neighbours, their yeah. neighbors and friends would tell theirs, etc., etc. Uh, it would grow on social media, and so they'd be left with a very small group of people going into their business who are racist or just don't care. Yeah. And that's not going to be enough to sustain the business. So their social consequence is they lose their business. Okay, that's that's enough. Yeah, they go yes. bankrupt. They go bankrupt. They yeah. lost their line of work because uh, they espouse that language. Mm-hmm. I think that is. Um, uh, I think I totally agree there. I, th- I think I think the the nature of like, using certain words um, or certain offensive terms. Or that, I, I totally agree. I don't think there should be any criminalization in and of itself of, of that. Um, but I certainly think that before we get to the incitement of violence, directly at least, there is a line I would draw. Um, and yeah, I agree, I, I think it's possibly interpretable, which is maybe an issue I hadn't considered, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not sure if we agree with like that in terms of like a just general offensive terms, like should be okay. I'm not sure um, yeah, I think, I, mean, I, I think we should be allowed to use offensive language, um, if that's something they choose to do. I, I think there, becomes, there comes a point there before direct incitement of violence, where such language would fall into a category that I think should be criminal. Yeah, so th- that's why I have more of a problem with um, uh, you know, the people that are trying to make it so that you, you go to jail for offensive language. It's, yeah, no, I, I definitely don't. Because I mean, the biggest problem with that is... It's more, it's more ideology. I, I, think, I think just to, to drag it away from, from specific words, specific language, I think it's more, if I'm espousing an intolerant ideology, so if I'm espousing uh, Nazism, right... I honestly believe that the, the public um, espousing of Nazism should, be, in and of itself, be an offence. Yeah, if, if you're going to deny the Holocaust, if you're going to support Nazist ideals that say that, uh, and we know that they say, even if you're not directly going to say we should kill all the X, Y, and Z people, that's understood to be part of that philosophy. Because at the point you support and espouse that philosophy, that shouldn't be allowed to happen in public spaces. That uh, it's as simple as that. I mean, obviously, I, I would disagree because uh, yeah. um, I, I think the best way of uh, dealing with it is to challenge it and to have the social consequences. Um, but I'll actually give an example sure. of this type of thing actually working. Um, it was uh, quite a few years ago, uh, maybe three or four, four years ago, when BMP were, had a lot of power in local councils. Yeah, the past I remember it well. Um, and there was a moment where Nick Griffin was brought onto the BBC for a question for an interview for one hour, mm-hmm. and after that interview, people finally saw what he was like, yeah. what his ideas were. Yeah. And very, very quickly, the BNP lost the large portion of their support. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they are now completely insignificant when it comes to politics, yeah. to the point where they're now, like, I think, on Twitter with only about 100 followers. Gosh, really? Okay, yeah. well, okay, fair enough. And so that's why I say, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant when it comes to bad ideas. Yeah, um, in, in, a, in a free market of ideas, the the best ideas will uh, will actually will win as long as we actually 
recognize that with the freedom of speech comes the, I suppose you could say, the, I suppose you could say the responsibility and duty to actually criticize bad ideas that yeah. have the potential to yeah. harm the rights of everyone. Yeah, and that's pretty much where Josh and myself left the conversation. Um, but I think we both found that we uh, agreed more than we thought we would and disagreed far less than we uh, both predicted that we would. And those things we did disagree on, we disagreed on in very different ways. Um, I was certainly interested to find out um, some more about libertarianism. Um, I certainly wasn't as aware that um, it's uh, not so much of a left and right issue, but an up and down one. Uh, I think that's something I'd considered perhaps in the abstract before, um, actually sitting down and have a co- having a conversation with someone who uh, espouses those ideals is something I hadn't really taken the time to do before. Um, and I don't think it's as big and as scary um, as a lot of people and a lot of mainstream media would, would make you uh, make you believe, um, at least with the reputation that it has. Um, so whilst I don't think that I'm necessarily convinced entirely of the libertarian view, um, or that I'm really not liberal uh, as an individual, um, I'm certainly more appreciative of it now, um, since Josh has come to, to speak to me about it, um, and, and I think say it's it's probably not something that one should be terrified of um, in any particular sense or way, um, or those views are, are bad or, or antisocial in some way. Um, so yeah, I'd really put a big uh, big shout, a big thank you to Josh for coming by. But um, this podcast has gone well past the one hour mark, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, I would remind you all again if you if you want to leave me some comments. Um, uh, then please feel free to do so on uh, on Twitter at Homo Absurdus. That's at H O M O A B U S U R D U S. And say so if there's anything you want me to uh, to ask Josh next time I buy a mobile, because I think we're definitely going to have another conversation. Perhaps we'll try something a bit more philosophical next time. Um, but yeah, it uh, was a pleasure talking to him. A really nice chap. Um, and I say libertarianism, not really something to be scared of. Perhaps not necessarily for me. Um, but hopefully it's uh, given everyone a better idea of what it is. Um, but yeah, as I say, uh, I've been Homo Absurdus, and for now, that's all folks. 